You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Okay, well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to sharing with you this morning. Let me just quickly open with a a quick prayer, and then we'll get straight into our Bible study this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, now for this time as we come just to open your wonderful word. We pray, Lord, that you'll give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So we are looking at the parable of the prodigal son this morning uh, from Luke chapter 15. If you have a Bible, you can turn, turn there, please. We'll be in and out of the text today. Now, this parable has been given the name, the parable of the prodigal son. I believe it is more properly called the parable of the gracious father because the standout character in this parable is, of course, the father, and I believe that is how it is meant to be, although we like to identify more with the prodigal, probably, and we we focus on him. But today, we're going to have a look at that. So I'm sure everyone, if you've been in church any amount of time, you've heard this parable. And even if you're not a churchgoer, most people have some understanding of this parable. Churches all around the world, particularly ones that follow a liturgy, will read this, usually in Lent actually, it's like the end, the end reading of the Lent liturgy cycle because it focuses on grace and mercy. So therefore, it's one of these themes that we read around this time of year. Yet this parable is only found in one gospel. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but yet the parable of the prodigal son is only in the gospel of Luke. However, only being in one gospel, this probably is the most well-known parable in the world. I would say, and it has had such a massive impact on the world. If you go through museums or you go through sort of the histories of, uh, of Western civilization and you'll find that pictures and art of this parable dominate uh, that period. Um, you've probably seen Rembrandt's famous painting, The Prodigal Son, this amazing picture of this man just hugging, hugging his son. There's so many things like this. There's been operas and plays and musicals written on this parable. There's films. Uh, bands like the Rolling Stones have, su- have songs named the Prodigal Son, uh, except for all the, obviously, the Christian worship musics. We, we had the Prodigal mentioned in one of our songs this morning. Uh, so it's just such a massive impact this parable um, has had. Now, uh, even in literature as well, Uh, Rudyard Kipling, you know, the man who wrote the the Jungle Book, he wrote a very famous poem about the prodigal son from the younger brother's perspective. The the hymn writer John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he wrote a poem, again, a song on the prodigal son. It's one of his less known works, but it's fascinating to read. We've had all the movies, and if you go on YouTube, you'll even find a Lego brick animation of the prodigal son. So this is just a huge impact considering this one parable takes up about 20 or so verses in a first century Jewish manuscript that we have such big influence. And that's why I want to look at it this morning because it is one of these classics. Um, It's such a rich parable. The characters in it that we all identify with, the themes of grace, mercy, redemption, we have anger, we have pride, arrogance, disrespect, family breakdown, and then we have joy, we have love, and we have forgiveness. And all these cra- classic Christian themes are all found in this parable. So we're going to look at some of these this morning. However, you may think sort of there's been so much done. You've probably heard many sermons on the parable of, of the prodigal son. What n- new element can we bring to it today? I have a series of commentaries on my bookshelf. They're called the, the Classic Sermon Series. So it's a 20-volume set. And it's a guy called Warren Wiersbe, a preacher who's gone through church history and he's collected the best sermons on different topics, so, you know, on the resurrection, on the Son of God. Or, and there's one whole book on classic sermons on the prodigal son. So you've got people like Moody and Spurgeon and Alexander McLaren, all great preachers from history who have all weighed in on the parable of the prodigal son. So, obviously, that's a hard act to follow in many respects. But one thing that these people generally are is they are preachers. And they preach the parable of the prodigal son as a gospel presentation. And that can be done wonderfully. I'm going to take a slightly different track with it this morning. 
What I want to try and do is open up a new aspect of the parable of the prodigal son by looking at it in the context of first century Israel. I want to try and show you some of the Jewish background that is uh, within this, uh, this parable, rather, that we often miss as Western readers. We don't pick up on these things. So that's what I want to look at today. Now, it's a very important parable. You see, many of us, particularly if we've been in church a while, we, it's easy to labor under a false understanding of God. We sort of have God of the New Testament, and then you've got this character in the Old Testament that seems to operate in a very different way. Now, we know that is categorically not true as Christians, if we understand that right. But even so, because the Old Testament seems to be very much focused on the Mosaic Covenant, on law and these sorts of aspects, how do we reconcile the two? And this, if you've ever engaged in our culture, comes from critics a lot. You know, they'll usually pick up on God as having a moral failing and then they'll point to some act in the Old Testament that, you know, they try and use to make their argument. And, and this is where that sort of schism comes from, this sort of separation between Jesus and then they don't, people don't quite know what to do with the God of the Old Testament. Now, this is one of those uh, events that shows us really the heart of God throughout the Bible. And yes, it's found in the New Testament, but remember, there wasn't a New Testament at this time. This was in first century Israel as Jesus was living and walking in that situation. So he's very much operating within continuity with the Old Testament at this time. It's very... Uh, it's a very good exercise to have as we enter into New Testament texts is to try and connect it always with something in the Old Testament. And this gives us that continuity that you need to have throughout the whole of the Bible. But before we actually jump in to this parable, uh, I won't read it. I'll read it through as we go. We won't read it all through now. We want to just focus on one other element that was such uh, an important aspect of Jewish culture at that time. And this is our, our first cultural insight and this is the fifth commandment. Obviously, you're in first century. Put yourselves into first century Israel here. You're walking around the shores of the Galilee with Jesus. You're very much in that Jewish context. The, the commandments were still extremely highly elevated at that time. The fifth commandment. This is the commandment to honor your parents. And then we have it again in, well, I'll read it to you. Exodus 20, verse 12. It says, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Fifth commandment. Then again, Leviticus 19, chapter 3. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Now, I want to just talk about this a little bit for you. So we have this word here, honor, in the fifth commandment. This is the Hebrew word kavod. And you'll find this word has a huge history in Jewish culture. It's used a lot. It's talked about in their writings a lot. Um, the way it was interpreted at this time was dignity. Okay? The command is to dignify one's mother and father. And that command to dignify them must come at all costs. That was, that was the essence of how this, this uh, command was understood. And then you have in Leviticus 19, it says, every one of you shall reverence, or the fear it may say in some of your trans translations. This is the word that is den denoting reverence. This is what we must reverence our father. Now, the Jewish interpretation, you find this in the Talmud still. The way they saw this was very practical, as it always is in the Jewish mindset. They were saying that you are, this was talking about making sure that your parents are provided with food, with clothes. You help them if they are unable to move. You do not interrupt them when they are speaking. You're not rude to them in public, even to the point that you do not sit in your father's chair. These are, these are all things that, the, that they debated in that culture at that time of what it means to honor and dignify and reverence your parents. I'm trying to get some of these going in my house. <laughs> See how it goes. But they even took this to the, to the extent that even after one of your parents dies, you're not to speak ill of them because you can still help, you know, lose, help them lose their dignity in the eyes of other people even when they're gone if you start to tear them down after they're dead you know so this is one of the this is this is this is how strong this was in their culture let me share with you a jewish story and again jesus taught in parables as much as jesus's parables were unique in many sense they were also very very continuous with what how the rabbis taught at that time there are hundreds of parables in jewish literature many of them very similar in this respect this is a a, a small parable called natina and dema 
and it's a story about honoring your parents. Let me read it to you because I just want you to have this understanding of how seriously this was taken in that culture so that when we hear Jesus' story of the parable of the prodigal son, we can appreciate the impact that that would have had on the audience he was speaking to. So this is, it says, Natina was a wealthy diamond merchant who owned a certain diamond which the high priest desired for his ephod. This was the, the vestment worn by the high priest and on which the diamond merchant had placed a price of 60 dinars. And when the messengers of the high priest called at the home of Natina to purchase the diamond, they were met by his son, Dama, at the door. They stated their mission and offered the price asked, but the son shook his head. Knowing how much their master desired the diamond, they increased their offer. But the son still shook his head, so they went away. The next day they returned, and when the son again met them at the door, they offered him a fabulous sum for the diamond. My friend, said the young man, the diamond shall be yours for 60 dinars. Yesterday, when you called, my father was asleep, and the key to the safe where the diamond is kept was under his pillow, <coughs> and I would not disturb my father in his rest for any sum to obtain it for you. You may now have the diamond for the amount you first asked by my father, as I do not desire to profit merely because I honored my father. You see, this is the strength that they wouldn't, he wouldn't even wake him to purchase a diamond and make a good profit for his father, because that would be considered a dishonor to wake your father while he's sleeping. See, this is the sort of strength that that fifth commandment, honor your parents, had in that culture. Now, it's with that sort of uh, mindset that I want us to go in now to this parable. So Luke chapter 15. Let's just set the context. I'll read verses 1 and 2 of the chapter. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So this is the context where Jesus gives this uh, amazing parable. The Pharisees, who are, who are the leaders at this time, they are grumbling that Jesus is receiving sinners into his presence, basically. That's what they're grumbling at. And then Jesus, it says in verse 3, so he told them this parable. And we actually have three parables here that he tells. One of the lost coin, and you know, the, you know both of those two smaller ones that are the, the lost sheep and then the lost coin. And it says when they're found, they re the people who find them rejoice. And not only do they rejoice, they get everyone around them to rejoice with them too. And this is a picture, obviously, of what happens in heaven when one sinner repents, and that's actually what it says there in the text. And again, so this is a very good glimpse into the heart of God already. He rejoices when that which is lost is found. But then he kind of moves into the main bulk of this longer parable. And this is Luke chapter 15. We'll start at verse 11. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now remember, this was an agrarian culture at this time. You didn't really have banks and that sort of stuff. Your livelihood was in your assets. Your provision was from your farm, your culture, your crops, and these sorts of things. That's how you lived at this time. Now, again, this concept of the father's inheritance passing to the sons, it, it, there's so much literature about that for, from the the Jewish writings we have at this time. And we know a lot about the actual laws that this parable, Jesus is referring to here in this parable. So the Mishnahic law specified that a father could execute a will even before his death in exceptional or necessary circumstances. So obviously, generally, you get your inheritance when your parents dies. And that's, you know, we still understand that concept in our culture today. But there was an exception in the law that on occasion a father could split up his, his inheritance before he died. However, the shock of the story is, it's the son that's instigating this. You see, it's the son that's going to his father. The exception is really for the father to, to do that at his own discretion. Um, and the father is perfectly healthy at this time. This is the, the first main shock of the story. You, you think about the story of Natina and Dema. You know, you, you wouldn't even wake your father. That's how much you honor your father. But now we have a son coming to his father and saying, sell everything you have and give me what's mine. That's basically what he's saying. In that culture at the time, it is basically like saying, father, you're taking too long to die. 
you know, can you just get on with it or give me my stuff? That is basically what is being said here to this man. So the, the, the first century audience that Jesus is speaking to, that would just be one of the biggest cultural faux pas. You know, this would have been a shock. Jesus would have had everyone's attention at the beginning of this story. Now, the inheritance laws did state that a father, he would divide it. Uh, if he did this before he died, he would divide it amongst his sons, but he would actually still retain control over the property, which is why in this parable, even later, we still see him giving, he's still commanding the estate. He throws the banquet, he, he gives the orders still. He still has control over it, although it's actually been sold, and the new purchaser will take possession of the land after the father dies. So that, that's kind of how this works with, with the actual laws that he's referring to. The son gets the right of possession, but the land can't be sold until the father actually dies. Now, obviously, the culture dictates at this time that for a son, a younger son particularly, to come and say this to his father, the father should refuse, he should be outraged, and as would the whole community. Remember, these are small, generally small communities, like small town, most people know everyone, Everyone's business is out in front of everyone. You know, everyone knows what's going on. The father should have refused this act. The son would probably expect to be quite severely disciplined at such a, a, a statement. However, this is the story of this parable. At every turn, we see the father going out of his way to show grace to people who have wronged him. And this is why it's really the parable of the gracious father. You see, at this moment, the father defies the expectation of the community, and he allows the son freedom to own and sell a portion of his estate. Now, what this would have done, this would have been in the eyes of the whole community. This would have brought the dysfunctional nature of that family into the eyes of the whole community, even more shaming the father at this sense. So this, this is what's happening here. I want you to get a feel for the, the richness of this story. And it says, so he divided his wealth between them. And notice it says them. The older brother is just as crucial for the narrative of this parable as the younger brother. We always focus on the prodigal. Whereas, in fact, the older brother is probably actually more the important part of the story. We'll see that at the end of the story. This reveals a lot about the older brother. You see, in that culture, it was the firstborn, the older son, who would have had the responsibility to mediate a dispute between a father and the younger son. This was what the, the role of the firstborn was, again, hugely important in this culture at the time. If a family dispute arose, the firstborn son should have been the one trying to sort this out. It was he who was actually the one who was supposed to have that fifth commandment in his head. He was supposed to be protecting the dignity of his father over his younger brother at that stage. It was him who was actually the one who was supposed to stop his father being shamed in the eyes of the community. Now, to Jesus' audience, the silence of the older son at this time was deafening. You see, because everyone knows, you know, particularly, the, I mean, he's speaking to Pharisees here, remember. These people know, you know, they speak, they understand what he's getting at. Instead, the older son doesn't do anything. It just says that he, along with his younger brother, was happy to take the wealth from his father's estate at this time and actually he would have received a double portion because of the rule of the firstborn you get double portion so he was actually getting more out of it than the younger brother who actually wanted to to do it so you can see these things what is going on here and he was able to then blame it on the younger son because he was the one who initially said it but yet he was still happy to take the money so immediately just in these first two verses of this parable we're introduced to a very broken family in some respects a selfish son who breaks his father's heart and a hypocritical self-righteous brother who thinks of his father merely as a means of gain. And these two brothers who clearly resent each other and don't desire necessarily to be a functioning family. Now why this is so, uh, this parable is just kind of speaks to us on so many levels is because we all at different points in our lives identify with one of the characters in this story or we know someone very close to us who we identify with in one of the as one of these characters you see often we act like the prodigal we are ungrateful for the blessings we have we can be selfish and rude and we can do that even in our relationship to the lord we don't think of how our actions affect others and we knowingly sin and often when we do that it is the same as shaming god to the world it's the same as what the younger son was doing to the father at that time. However, often, 
particularly if we've been in church settings a long time, we're more like the older brother. We're very religious, we're very good at doing Christian things and keeping the Christian expectations, yet often we think that means we should be blessed more than those who are prodigals and haven't learned those things yet. That's also one of the dangers and one of the teachings of this parable. We often relate to God in a legalistic way. I have obeyed, therefore I should be blessed, is how we sometimes think, even if we don't verbalize it like that. Let's look at the next two verses, 13 and 15. It says, And not many days later the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields, and he fed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to eat. This is the next part of our story. Now notice again, it says, not many days. What that basically means is he had a very quick sale. And how do you get a quick sale, generally? You sell for something that's you lower the price. You sell it for less than it's actually worth, and you get a quick sale. That, that's what's really being indicated here at this part of the story. He had to leave quickly, obviously because he was kind of a black sheep now of the community. The community would be aghast that he'd asked this of his father. So he gets a quick sale, probably for much less than it was worth. And what this means really is that the way this, these sorts of agrarian cultures worked, the estate would have been building up value over the years. Everything their father worked for the generation of accumulated gain would just be wiped out within a few days by lowering the price to get a quick sale. Um, you know, again, it's just another insult to all the work that the father and the family have put into that piece of land over the years. He left with his money, he traveled on his adventures, and he did what he did. Uh, it says loose living. Uh, the word really means wasteful or spendthrift is another term that people translate it. We often have this picture of him going out and sort of, you know, going to the local brothel and doing all these sorts of things, which is how the picture, it doesn't actually say that in the text. It just says he was wasteful with the money. That's actually the younger brother who accuses him of that later. But we don't actually know if that's true. That's just, that's the older brother rather just making accusations. It just says he was wasteful with the money. And notice it says, another, another cultural key here that, I, that, we, that we miss, when it says he filled his stomach with pods. Okay, now these pods, these are called carob pods. And again, the carob pod has a huge history in Jewish culture. Okay, there's, there's, there's whole sections of the Talmud and Jewish writings that are talking about what this pod means. The pod, the carob pod particularly, was described as the food of the poor. Okay, it was the lowest of the low. Only pigs would only eat it when they were really hungry. Even pigs would only eat it, you see. And the rabbis used to teach that Israel needed the carob pod to be forced into repentance. Okay, only when they are in such a state of degradation and poverty will they seek repentance. So when Jesus, again here, remember he's speaking to the Pharisees, when he mentions and brings this pod into the story, this is what they'll be thinking. This is the connection they will make. This history in their, in their culture at that time that carob pods were a sign of deep, deep poverty, destitution, rejection by God, and they were designed to bring you to repentance, you see. And now we have in this story, we have this Jewish boy who's insulted his father. He's living in a Gentile area of the, the land now because there's pigs there. That's not kosher for Jewish people. And he is, in fact, having to feed these pigs. And the food he is feeding them is the lowest of low in Israeli society, but it's even that that he is saying, I wish I had some of that food right now. It's showing, it, like, the reason Karapod is mentioned here is to highlight the depth of depravity that this man has sunk into. Okay, and we miss it just with that, we just think it's grain feeding the pigs. It's not, it's speaking volumes to this Jewish audience here at this time. Now, you might think he's a Jewish boy, he's working feeding pigs. This is probably the biggest humiliation for, for an Israelite at this time. Why not just return home? Now, yes, it could be embarrassing. You have to say sorry and all these things. But again, there's much more to it than this. And we learn this from Jewish culture. 
There was a, a ceremony, it's called a cutting off ceremony, a kizazar, they call it. And this Jewish custom dictated that if a Jewish boy lost his family inheritance to a Gentile, and then he dared to return home, he would face what they call the kizazar ceremony. What this basically was is that the whole village would gather together. They would bring large clay jars that are filled with burnt nuts and burned corn and things that are inedible and ruined. And they would stand before him and they would smash these, these things in front of his feet. And this was done by the elders of the village, of which his father probably was an elder of this village. They would smash it in his feet and then the whole village would, would say, you are cut off from your people and he would leave and he would be excommunicated, as in how we would call it. He would be banished from, from that village. This is how serious it was to lose the family inheritance to the Gentile world at that time. So I'm, ju I'm just trying to give you these keys that, so you can understand the impact that this story would be having on this group of Pharisees that Jesus is talking to right here. So this is another element of why this boy would not return home at this time because he knows he would face this, this cutting off ceremony. Took at verses 17 to 19. It says, But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men men. Now this is, I want you to, to listen to this part cruci crucially. It says, when he came to his senses. Now this is generally, you know, 99% of the time as you hear this parable interpreted, they interpret that little phrase as meaning that's when he came to repentance. They say, this is, you know, he came to himself, even the sermons by Spurgeon and Moody, and they'll say, this is the moment of repentance. He came to himself, he came to understand what had happened and he came to repentance. Now this is the most damaging part of the traditional interpretation because it ruins the climax. This is not the climax, okay? There's something more going on here. Let me share, share with you what is actually going on here. You see, for 1800 years, all of the Arabic and the Syriac and all the Targums, all these different translations that we have from this culture, the way they interpreted that phrase is that he got smart. It not came to his senses, it means he, he came up with a plan is what it means, really. And it is a self-serving plan still. He has not reached that point of repentance yet. If you put repentance at this point in the story, you ruin the story. Because the real point of repentance comes a little bit later, and it's much, much more climactic than we have here. So what, this is what he's saying here. There's no remorse here. He is still basically concerned with his own well-being. It's food, really, that's driving him to this plan that he's hatching at this moment. He knows that restoration is only possible with money. The only way to avoid the cutting off ceremony was to return home with the money so that he didn't squander the inheritance with the Gentiles and face this cutting off ceremony. So he doesn't have the money, so what he thinks is that I'll go and I'll work and I'll pay off that money whilst being one of the, one of the slave hands, one of the laborers in the community at that time. The only problem for him is it's his father who's the boss so he's going to need his father's okay to join even the workforce. This is what's going on in his head. So he comes up with this plan. I know what I'll say. I'll come to my father and I'll say, I, you know, I'm not worthy to be your son. Let me be one of your hired hands. How will he convince his father to trust him? It's, this, it's a humble, false humility, rehearsed speech. And this shows us that the, sadly the prodigal at this stage in his uh, deprivation, he does not really realize the nature of sin. He's thinking solely that the issue is lost money and lost community standing, whereas in reality it is a father's broken heart. That is really the issue, because what does sin do? It separates us from God. This is what it says all throughout the Bible. It's not necessarily broken law, it's that broken relationship at this point. That is the real point of this story. The prodigal has not realized that yet. Now again, we see also in this little phrase the sophistication of Jesus' storytelling. Remember, he's talking to, to a scholarly audience, to the Pharisees at this time. One of the ways, and you see this all throughout the New Testament, again, we miss so much of this. One of the ways that the Jewish people spoke to each other through stories with these scriptures is they would quote little parts of the Old Testament. Remember, this was an oral culture. They had, the Pharisees in particular, had huge parts of the Bible, if not all of it, committed to memory. And if you wanted 
to reference something in the Old Testament while you're teaching, you would quote a small section of it. Like with the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. That Jesus does this in the New Testament. And the audience would think, right, he's making a connection with that text there. Whereas we would just say, you look at your cross-reference or you look at a commentary and these sorts of things. This is how they did it in their culture. And Jesus does this here with this rehearsed speech. He says, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. That is almost a direct quotation, and if it wasn't for the sort of Hebrew-Greek translation issues, it would be, of Exodus 10, verse 16. And Exodus 10, verse 16 is, again, the very famous story in Jewish times to do with Moses and Pharaoh. It's between the eighth and the ninth plague, where Pharaoh uh, comes to Moses and he says, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Exactly the same phrasing in those words there. But we know that Pharaoh is not really um, con- you know, contrite in repentance and confession here. He's just trying to get Moses to stop with the plagues so that he can get back to doing what he wants to do. Pharaoh is not repenting. He is just trying to mend, bend Moses to his will at this point. And Jesus here uses this very sophisticated method of interpretation. And he quotes from Exodus. The, the, the speech that the prodigal son says is pretty much out of the mouth of Pharaoh. And everyone in that audience would have understood what is happening when he said that. He makes it clear that the prodigal had similar intent. He was doing something for his own benefit. Just like Pharaoh wanted the plagues gone, but he didn't really want to let the Israelites go. The prodigal wanted to stop feeding pigs. He wanted to eat, but he knew he had to um, pay back the money. So this is how he comes up with it. And this is why this is a rehearsed speech. It's not the moment of repentance. It's his last self-serving plan. So then we move into the confrontation when he returns home. Remember, he's walking up this road. He's got in his head, this is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to work. I'm going to say my speech. I'm going to say my plan. I'm going to tell him I'm not worthy. That'll, that'll, you know, he'll be happy with that. And I'll get accepted onto the workforce. Then I can pay back the money. You see how sort of ridiculous this is all in the son's head. And this is what happens. So verse 20, and now we sort of build up to the climax. So he got up and came to his father. And but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and now they began to celebrate. So this is kind of the climax of the story right here now. The prodigal is bracing for his return. You can imagine he's very nervous as he's approaching the outer gates of the city. Remember, he's shunned from the community. Everyone knows what he did. And he's returning back now with no money in a shameful situation. But this is where we see the gracious father. You see, the father also has a plan. And he is described as being waiting and watching at the edge of his village. And I'd imagine he was there quite often, waiting and watching for his prodigal son. And it says, while he was a long way off. And again, in this this verse, we have an echo of a famous portion of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 57, verse 19, where it says, Peace to him who is far, and to him who is near. Now in far, the prodigal son. Near, we have the older brother, to which the story will switch in a moment. And here we see, the father once again defying cultural expectations. He breaks the mold. It's likely at this time he would have taken the bottom of his long robe and picked it up so that he could run, revealing his legs, which is again a a humiliating act for a dignified elder at this time. And he runs down the road to welcome his pig-herding, unclean son at this time. He falls on his neck. He kisses him before he even hears the prepared speech. That's the point there. We love him because he first loved us. You see, his love is not in response to the confession. It is out of his own compassion. You see, he empties himself here. He assumes the form of a servant, the father I'm talking of now, and he runs down the road to reconcile with his son. 
This is the climax of the story right here. Surprised and overwhelmed, the son now tries to offer that rehearsed speech because this is what he's got in his head. But this speech now takes on a whole new meaning and I believe this is where the real repentance happens. The repentance happens at the vision of the son offering unconditional grace and love to him. And you'll notice the speech is different now. Look at it. The first part is the same, but he misses off the last part. He says, he, all he says is, I'm not worthy. He doesn't say, make me one of your hired hands, which was the whole point of him coming back. That part is gone. In light of the Father's love now, that part is useless. He knows that's, that's a fraud. He can't do that. In a moment of genuine repentance, the prodigal accepts to be found. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That is now an acknowledgement of the true state of the prodigal. Now he understands the nature of sin, having seen his father running down the road to greet him and showering him with love. And again, we see this sort of, we call it hermeneutical Christology, if we want to use a fancy term, where Jesus will often take a picture of God and kind of apply it to himself in that way. We see him doing this a lot through the Bible. And you can kind of see Philippians chapter 2, you know, he emptied himself by becoming a form of a man in a form of a servant, humbled himself by becoming obedient. That, you kind of see that in the back as you see this, this dignified elder of the village picking up his robe and just running out to his son, doing, you know, and just embracing him here. This is a great picture of Christ. What he's basically saying to the pharisaical audience who are listening at this time, you lot were complaining that I was meeting with sinners that I was sitting with them and that I was eating with them. He is basically replying to their grumbling with this story, which in effect says to them, indeed, I do eat with sinners, but it is much worse than you've actually imagined. I not only eat with them, I run down the road, I shower them with my love and my f affection, I forgive them and I drag them back in that I may eat with them, be with them in, as part of my family. See, that's his answer to the Pharisees. And you see how powerful that is with all of these cultural keys that he's gone through and how he is breaking the mold of every single one of them. This is the beauty of this story. You see, the son deserved the Kezazar cutting off ceremony, but instead, because of the actions of an unmerited grace of the father, he ended up sitting at a lavish banquet with the whole community. This is the picture of the Son. And what a picture I believe this is of our salvation in many respects. This is what grace really is. We don't get what we do deserve because of the grace of the Father. We will be at that same banquet in heaven one day. This is the teaching that he's saying here. Now let's carry on with the story because it's not over yet. That's just sort of the, the first climax. There's much more to it, which often gets missed off in the story. Let's read verses, well, let's read the whole thing now, 25 down to 32, and then we'll make some comment. It says, For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again, uh, and he was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Sorry, 25. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a commandment of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf, for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for his brother of, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And this is the back end of the story. And in my experience, in all the things that I've read on the prodigal son, most people are kind of done by the time they get to that great kind of part with the father and they make their you can see how that leads to an evangelistic sermon very very easily and that's great to do that we should all be doing that but this kind of means that this half of the story is left off a little bit because Jesus is not done and I would say this half is even more important because this is speaking directly to the Pharisees now in this respect as the as the older brother it's very interesting to look at how this banquet is interpreted and this shows us the way that we often view things very differently 
Uh, we interpret different things differently. For the father, the banquet was in honor of the son who was dead, who is found now. He was lost and found, he's dead and alive. The father found him at the edge of the village, and in that demonstration of costly love, he brought him back into the family. Now, for the older son, he finds this banqueting very insulting. He says, you killed the fatted calf for him, that no good younger brother of mine who's insulted you, for him, not me. You see, that, and this, is, this tells us a, God, a lot about this older brother. This older brother who was more than happy to take the money in the beginning of the story and, and seemingly been doing whatever he wanted with that part of the portion. But it, it's a different character, but still equally as lost as the prodigal son. And that's what we want to learn from this. You see, who is the banquet in honor? The prodigal or the father? The prodigal for reaching home on his own efforts or the father for achieving reconciliation? The whole parable is about the father. That's really what it's about here. He's trying to teach these Pharisees at this time about the love of God. You see, the son is angry. The older brother, all he can see is a broken law, the lost money, the insults, the dignity, and the fact that he's not getting treated as well as the younger brother. And that's what really is bothering him at this point. He sees grace being offered, unmerited grace, by the father to the younger son, and it makes him mad. And this is, very, uh, this is a really important point. You see, because for some people, grace is almost too amazing. You, you almost feel like, and we fall into this as believers too sometimes, we almost feel like there's something we have to do to pay back or to earn it or to, to be acceptable to receive it, something like that. No, it is simply unbelievable, amazing grace. But the older brother, his self-righteousness has colored being at his worldview. He cannot see grace in its purest, most beautiful form because of his self-righteousness, because he has said, I've always been with you. I've done everything you've said. Read that like he's talking to the Pharisees, who, whose whole life was spent proving that they have obeyed the commandments of God. That's the point he's trying to make to them here. But yet, even having done that, they're not with the Father. That's the point that he's making. You see, this self-righteousness causes him to publicly insult his father by refusing to go in. Now, when, when, your elder, when the elder of the village, your father particularly, show, you know, throws a banquet for the village and the older son, is the firstborn, is not present, that is, again, bringing the family uh, dysfunctionality into the light of the community and, again, insulting the father. The first time it was the prodigal insulting him. Now we have the older brother's turn to insult him in just the same way. He insults his father by not going in whereas he actually should have been the one overseeing the whole proceedings. And it says in the text he was angry there and refused to go in. And, and think about this. This just shows you the heart of the older brother and, and the Pharisees, I believe, at this time. The display of the father's love, the act of unmerited grace, made him angry and he refused to go in. And is that not the heart of an unbeliever in many, in many respects that we see? It's a tragic verse. And what's even more tragic about it is that he was so close to the banquet. He'd been in the presence of the father in that respect. He'd lived on the estate. He had almost kind of, he had the right that he should be going in. But it was his own sin that kept him out. And he stayed out in the fields, presumably getting more angry as he heard the merrymaking going on in the banquet hall. Now, we know in the Bible that banquets have huge symbolism. They are a symbol of fellowship and blessing in God's presence all throughout the Bible. We see that here with communion. This was, this was a, you know, a Passover, a messianic banquet in that respect. We see it with the, supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb talked about you know, in the kingdom age. Fellowship and communion with God. Now, how many do we know that sit nearby you know, maybe they've heard some of the truth of the God. They've heard the gospel, maybe even. Or, you know, they've been witnessed to, but due to their own sin and pride or bitterness towards someone. Anger and bitterness are just two things that probably keep us away from fellowship more than anyone else. And it's not just, you know, Christians can suffer from that too. Someone wrongs us, someone hurts us, we have bitterness in our heart, and therefore we see that they're still being blessed in the fellowship. We look at them like, why are they being blessed? When, they, when people don't know what they've done to me, I need to go and tell someone what they've done to me. That's the older brother. You see, so 
I would say that most of us actually, maybe one, once in our life we identified more with the prodigal. But as we've kind of been in church for a long, long time, if you're in that situation, you actually, through no fault of your own, you just sort of naturally end up morphing into the, like the older brother if you're not careful. And the remedy for both of these things is to take one more look at that father running down the path to hug the son. It's the unmerited love of the father. And they're the two things. Now, we don't see that with the older brother. We'll get to that in a moment. You see, the father, again, he goes out of his way now to make reconciliation with his older son. And he does something, again, that no typical patriarch who's thrown a banquet and has invited guests in his banquet hall at that time should do. He gets up and he leaves his guests and he goes out to seek his older brother. You see, this is, <laughs> this is a big thing. You don't, you don't leave your guests, but everyone knows the older son's not there. And the father, we've seen that this father does not care for cultural, you know, he is, the love that he has for his sons, he is willing to override all of these cultural expectations. In front of everyone, he leaves the head place at the table and he goes out to offer another demonstration of costly love. And this time it is to one who doesn't outwardly necessarily appear to be an outright, what we would call, you know, someone stuck in sin. You know, the prodigal was more easily, you know, he took the money, he went off and he partied. That, you know, it's much easier to kind of look and be like, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Whereas he was like, I've served you, I've done everything you've asked, I've labored, I've never had a day off, I've never had a party for my friends. He'd served with his father, he'd done everything he'd be commanded, but he still had no relationship with his father in that sense. He was lost, you could say, because of his goodness, if I can put it like that. Not that he was actually good, but that's in his head, that's what the story is trying to emphasize. He was lost because of his goodness, but he was still lost. He was bitter with others because of his obedience. And if we are doing things out of a legalistic obedience, trying to please the Lord, we will end up looking at others who do not meet our standards, and we will look at them with that same anger and judgmental looks that we do with others. And if you, you know, you've probably all experienced that at some, at, su- at some point. It's so easily done. And again, Jesus is teaching us these lessons here in this parable. The older brother was close physically, but he was far spiritually. Now, again, another lesson for us here. We can be at church, and we can still be very far from God, whether that means we're not saved, or whether that just means we've kind of become accustomed and we've grown to a place we've got something going on in our life that has caused a root of bitterness we've got something going on in our life that has meant we've taken steps back from that intimacy that God wants us remember the father got up and he left the table and he begged the son to come in the father went to the edge of village waiting watching and he ran down the road to see his son this is the heart of the father this is the message of the gospel bid them to come in come in. This is a heart of God, a God who wants to dwell with people, his people. We see this all throughout the Bible. This is ultimately the story of the Bible. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He came to dwell at the top of Mount Sinai. He came to dwell in the tabernacle, dwell in the temple. Ultimately, in John, it says he came to dwell in the incarnate person of Jesus Christ. This is what we have, a story of a God who wants to dwell, and he wants those sons the ones who are far and the ones who are near to come to him in relationship, in repentance, so that he can bless them with those lavish banquets. Now, you see, amazing grace is true for the lawbreaker and for the lawkeeper. We both need amazing grace. Now, what's important about this parable is that it never actually ends. You notice it never tells us what the older brother does. We have that act of love by the father to going out and meeting him again, but we never find out whether the older brother comes in. And there's a very good reason for that. Jesus leaves this parable open-ended on purpose. Because remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the Pharisees who have been moaning about him loving prodigals at this moment. And he skillfully winds this story up so that there is no doubt that when he is addressing the older brothers, he is addressing the Pharisees right in front of them. And he doesn't finish the story because the story was not yet finished at that point. He was basically putting the ending on the responsibility of the Pharisees, saying, what are you going to do now? Are you going to stay like the older brother, or are you going to co- come into the banquet hall? And it's, again, it's, a, that's, it's just such a beautiful and powerful, skillful way that Jesus uses stories in his evangelism there. And we can ask ourselves, 
how we write, how well, we, we can see how the, the Pharisees ended writing this parable, but where are we in the story? This is what we must ask ourselves, because I believe, although he's speaking first century Israel to the Pharisees, we know it's the word of God, it echoes throughout time, and it speaks to us just as much today. Like I said, I used to identify myself more with the prodigal. At times in my conduct, I realize I've slipped into the character of the older brother. We should be aiming really to be more like the father, because we want to imitate, we're called in Ephesians, aren't we? Imitate God. This is what we want to do. And I believe the way that we do that Yes, it's a transforming work of the Holy Spirit, but we need to just take time in this, using the language of this parable and just looking at this father and those costly acts of love that he did when he went out to meet both the prodigal and the first older brother. That's the father. You see, God, by his mercy and grace, is still saving prodigals. We know we meet prodigals all the time, these people who are lost, they don't know the Lord, they hear the gospel, they hear the love of the Father. God loves saving those people. Remember how the parable was introduced by those two other parables, the sheep and the coin. And what did it say? When that which was lost was found, everyone rejoices. Not just God, God will then get everyone else to rejoice with him. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. This is the whole point of these stories. That's how he introduced it. And that's what he's getting at here. He's still saving prodigals, but he is still seeking to save the older brothers too. And that's the point. We don't want to focus too much on one other. We get both of them. We are both of them. We have been both of them. None of us would deny that, I'm sure. And that's why I call this the parable of the gracious father. Because at every turn, we see a gracious God who is willing to go the extra mile to reach his prodigal children. And this is a God of love. And this is the one that we see uh, revealed to us throughout the scriptures. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for this, uh, this portion of scripture. I would ask, Lord, that you uh, just put the message deep into our hearts, Lord, that it would just help us to live a life joyful obedience to you, Lord God, as we are just overwhelmed by your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.